Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Today, I want to talk about how to get rich. (laughs) Aren't you glad you decided to tune in today? I want to contrast two different ways of getting rich, what might be called a way of conventional wisdom and the way of unconventional wisdom. A conventional wisdom is that money is just about math. Uh, The more you get, the richer you are. If you give some away, then you're left with less, so you lose. It's just a numbers deal. Uh, Conventional wisdom says make as much as you can and keep as much as you make because the more you give, the less you have. And the less you give, the more you have. If you give nothing, then you have the maximum amount you can have. If you give, uh, if you have $10 and you give one, 10 minus one equals nine. But if you have $10 and you give nothing, 10 minus zero equals 10. 10 is more than nine. Are you with me so far? I know this is deep. In other words, conventional wisdom is, it's just math. Keeping is a better strategy to get rich than giving. It's just math, it's just numbers. But there's another way. It's the way of unconventional wisdom. And it's counterintuitive. It's talked about down through history from a lot of people and never more clearly than from Jesus. This is what Jesus said. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You'll notice this is not a command. Jesus is not saying here, you ought to give. You should, but that's not what he's saying. This is simply an observation about the way life works, about the way things are. That conventional wisdom is wrong. And you can test this. There are moments when the heart is generous, and that's when you know. When you start to look for it, you see this other way, this unconventional wisdom all throughout the Bible. This is from the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Once again, this is just a statement about the way things are. It could be empirically tested. When it comes to resources, finances, generosity, conventional wisdom is wrong. The old math will actually lead you astray. People before Jesus saw this, Jesus saw it. Uh, People who followed Jesus saw this. Here's one more passage. Uh, This is from the Apostle Paul, but there are dozens of these passages in scripture and elsewhere. This is what Paul writes. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. This is just the way things are. 
Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Paul says, I want you to think of generosity, not in terms of having or losing, but in sowing and reaping. This puts it at, in another category altogether. Uh, think about Paul's picture here for a moment. Uh, there has really, in the history of the human race, only been one major economic revolution. We live in the Bay Area and pride ourselves on technology. Uh, there was the Industrial Revolution, but there's only one revolution that really changed things. And for who knows how long, human beings roamed from one place to another. They lived from one day to the next. They scavenged and forged for food wherever they can find it. Until one day, the greatest innovator in human history, we don't even know their name, made a discovery and looked for some investors and told them, I want you to give me whatever grains, whatever uh, seeds you've found that you've been storing up so that you can eat them. Instead of keeping them to eat, which is what we've always done, I'm gonna put them in the ground. I know this sounds dumb, I get it, but I've discovered something about the nature of reality previously unknown to hum the human race that's gonna blow your mind. If you take your supply of seed and put it in the ground, I call this sowing, uh, something happens. Some kind of power gets unleashed. I don't understand it, I don't get it. It's like something up in the sky says to something down in the ground, hey, wake up, come alive, grow, and it does. I know it sounds crazy, but it works. Trust me, run a test. This is the very first startup. It's actually how startups got their name. You put a little seed in the ground and it starts up. Uh, okay, I just made that up. God says generosity is that way. Money is that way. Take some of what you have. He told Israel 10% and sow it. Give it away. It sounds crazy. I know it does. But if you do, something happens. Some kind of power gets unleashed. It's like something in the sky says to something on the earth, wake up, come alive, grow. And it does. If you sow richly, you will reap richly. Give and it will be given to you. Understand, this is not about a prosperity gospel. This is not a sneaky way to gain wealth. In fact, if you're aiming at gaining wealth, you'll go wrong every time. Paul says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. You may be thinking, Somebody ought to put this idea to the test to see if this can be empirically verified. Well, it turns out someone has. I read a great book the last couple of weeks. It's called The Paradox of Generosity. It's written by a sociologist at Notre Dame called, uh, named uh, Christian Smith. He's doing an amazing work in our day, and he's done kind of the, uh, the definitive research, the definitive study to look at the impact of generosity on the lives of real people. He surveyed over 2,000 people in a national survey, and then he did in-depth interviews with a number of the people. Uh, they used the best tools of social science to look at what does generosity do for people? Is conventional wisdom right? 
If you give away, do you lose it? Or is unconventional wisdom right? And I'll give you this summary. This is what Christian Smith writes. Generosity is paradoxical. Those who give receive back in return. By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own standing. In letting go of some of what we own, we better secure our, lo- our own lives. By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move toward flourishing. This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching, it is a sociological fact. The generosity paradox can also be stated in the negative. By grasping onto what we currently have, we lose out on better goods that we might have gained. In holding onto what we possess, we diminish its long-term value to us. By always protecting ourselves against future uncertainties and misfortunes, we are affected in ways that make us more anxious about uncertainties and vulnerable to future misfortunes. In short, by failing to care for others, we do not properly take care of ourselves. This is an amazing study. Again, it's based on empirical research. Whatever you uh, think about what the Bible or other spiritual traditions say about generosity, I mean, this is just based on empirical research. Uh, Throughout the book, he contrasts two different ways of life. Uh, The generous heart, uh, people who regularly freely give a, a significant portion of their valued resources, of their time and money away to others to help others, versus the ungenerous heart. Uh, People who do not regularly and freely give away their valued resources, their time and money to others. And it turns out that in every dimension studied, in your happiness, in your uh, physical health, in uh, having a purpose for living, in the avoidance of depression, in personal growth, generous people are enriched in every way and ungenerous people are diminished in every way. It turns out Jesus was right. Go figure. It turns out that ungenerosity actually costs more than generosity in every regard. To illustrate how this works, I'm going to look at maybe the most spectacularly ungenerous heart in the Bible. It belonged to a guy named Pharaoh. Uh, This is what the writer of scripture says in the book of Exodus. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And the Israelites built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. Uh, Christian Smith found that one of the ways generosity leads to flourishing is that generosity tends to reduce what he called maladaptive self-absorption. It turns out that ungenerous people tend to fixate on themselves and only think about their own problems and obsess over their own self-worth. Pharaoh is kind of the poster boy for maladaptive self-absorption. All he can think about is himself and it impoverishes his heart. Uh, You know, I have to have more slaves so that I can have more bricks, so that I can have more storage, so that I can keep more gain, so that I can hoard more wealth. Like, how much do you have? Not enough. How much do you need? More. 
Pharaoh is the richest guy in Egypt and Pharaoh is the most financially insecure guy in Egypt. He's miserable over what he might lose. It's a miserable life. Smith also found ungenerous hearts pay a relational cost. Moses is sent to Pharaoh. Moses says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Here's what Pharaoh doesn't say. Pharaoh doesn't say, Moses, tell me more. Like, how are your people doing? Are working conditions okay? Is everyone getting enough to eat? Are there opportunities for advancement for, for the people? Is morale high? Pharaoh knows if he's generous with them, if he allows them time off, it means less bricks for him. And so he's not gonna be generous. His goal is more bricks. He needs Israel to be more motivated. How do you motivate people? Well, Pharaoh has an idea. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's what they are, crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people. And then Pharaoh says to the Israelites, you know, people with more often say this to people who have less. Lazy, that's what you are, lazy. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. People with ungenerous hearts have a way of developing a distorted view of other people, and it will leave them all alone. And we're going to dig into this a little more in just a moment. As Matt said, an ungenerous heart has a way of distorting our view of other people in a way that devalues them or at its worst, dehumanizes them. It's the result of an internal desire for more. Our society craves and pursues more at every turn. We seek fulfillment by directing most of our resources towards our security, possessions, enjoyment, and luxury. An ungenerous heart blinds us to the opportunities for the generosity that surrounds us every day. One way to counter this is through the spiritual practice of serving as an act of generosity. In his book, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster writes, we must seek to perceive what service looks like in the marketplace of our daily lives. In other words, how do we individually live out a life of service each day? Serving can and should happen in every arena of life, personal, professional, and spiritual. It's an outflow of a heart transformed by Jesus and a Christ-centered life. Now, this could mean serving on a team at your church or a local nonprofit, maybe the under-resourced in your area, or a need you're aware of that you can do something about. In serving from a generous heart, not only does it impact you, but it brings value, love, dignity, help, and hope to those that you serve. So ask yourself, what are the opportunities that surround you? What can serving look like in your daily life? Well, let's rejoin Matt as he continues this comparison of the ungenerous and generous heart. There's a woman at Princeton named Susan Fisk 
Uh, she's done some fascinating research on how we look at the poor. Uh, she's done a lot of research uh, around stereotyping. And she says in stereotyping people, we use two main dimensions. Uh, let's say you see a stranger in an alley. Uh, you tend to rate them or evaluate them or judge them along two lines. Do they intend good or harm for me? And that's warmth. And then are, you, are they able to carry out their intentions or not? And that's competence. And we tend to put people in one of four quadrants based on high or low warmth and high or low competence. And there are people we consider to be high in warmth, they're good people, and high in competence. They're strong, they're able to do what they want to do. And these are our heroes. Uh, these are the people that we admire the most. I wanna show you some people who belong in this category. You know, we live in the Bay Area, so uh, San Francisco Giants uh, baseball players like Buster Posey, and Brandon Crawford would be in this quadrant. Uh, are they not guys Jesus clearly loves? Uh, anyway, we, we love these guys because they, uh, they're high in warmth, meaning they have good hearts, and they're high in competence. They're able to do what they want. Then there are people we say are high in competence, but we kind of don't like them. Uh, we don't think a whole lot of them. Uh, I want you to see some people who fit in this category. These are the New York Yankees. We intend to envy these people because they win things like World Series, uh, but we don't like them. Fisk says, we admire them like greedy rich people. Uh, we might put in this category uh, beautiful movie stars who are kind of selfish, uh, high in competence, but not very warm. We envy them. Then there are some people our hearts move toward uh, we put them in a high warmth category, but they're low in competence. We pity these people. Again, here are some people who fit in this category. <laughs> I love these guys, uh, but they're kind of losers. There's one more quadrant. This is the interesting one. This is the only one where there's nothing positive about this quadrant at all. Uh, these are people who are low in warmth. We don't like them and they're low in competence. They really can't do anything. Again, a picture of people who go in this quadrant. <laughs> uh, now I know the Dodgers won the World Series last year, but it was 2020. I mean, does anything really count in sports that year? Susan Fisk says, these people elicit contempt, uh, which is true for Cub fans and Giant fans. All right, true confession. I don't hate the Dodgers. Uh, I do enjoy messing with my friends who are Dodger fans, though. Uh, here's what's very interesting. In her research, she, she says that in our society, we put homeless people in this quadrant. It's so interesting. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that can be done now in neuroscience by using brain scans. Uh, neuroimaging shows uh, that when people look at images of extreme poverty of the poor, the same part of their brain is active as when they look at objects. In other words, at the brain level, at the level of our deepest, uh, our deeply embodied habits, we don't think of them as people with the same hopes and feelings and dreams and, hurt and hurts as us. The number one emotional response to the poor in our day is contempt. Babies don't do that. We have to learn to look at the poor with contempt, and we do. 
What's really interesting is when Jesus came to earth, he was God incarnate. You don't get higher in competence than that. And you don't get higher in warmth. But Jesus was homeless. Jesus said, birds have their nest, foxes have their holes, but the son of man, that is Jesus, has no place to lay his head. I wanna say this to you if you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're not. Uh, This is just for you if you're a follower of Jesus. Shane Claiborne put it like this. You can't worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday. Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these, you do it for me. He said, when you see one of these people, you're looking at me. When I'm on the street and I see a homeless person, when I see someone who's really poor, the same part of my brain ought to light up that would light up if I was looking at Jesus. Generous hearts start to move toward this. Generous hearts begin to build bridges. Ungenerous hearts build walls. People who keep clutching and holding on to their money get a little poorer every year in every regard. Another cost is ungenerous people have a lower sense of meaning and purpose in their lives when they wake up every day. Instead of being the oppressor of Israel, which Pharaoh was, he could have been the hero of Israel. I mean, he could have said, I want you to go. I want you to worship your God. I'm, I'm gonna give you that freedom. I'll be your benefactor. I'll be your champion. I'll believe in you. I'll, I'll be your friend. I mean, he could have been the liberator of Israel. They would have cheered him and loved him. Instead of doing that, he was building himself a pyramid. Do you know what went inside a pyramid? He was saying, I'm gonna build the world's greatest building and then when I die, I'll move my dead carcass in there and everyone will go, wow, how impressive is that? Ungenerous hearts end up living for wretched, miserable little egos and they build giant monuments into which their dead carcass can be stored. Another, car, another cost of the ungenerous heart Christian Smith found was anxiety. Ungenerous people become increasingly anxious people. It turns out that ungenerous people rationalize their ungenerosity by convincing themselves day after day and year after year that the world is a place of scarcity, that the world is a place of not enoughness. I have to hang on to every single dollar I can because my clutching is actually justified by what a wretched world this is. Here's the thing, as long as money is the chief source of my security, money will be the chief source of my anxiety. It's just that way. That's why we live in the most affluent age in human history, in the middle of unbelievable financial anxiety. Smith put it like this, practicing generosity requires and reinforces the perception of living in a world of abundance and blessing. Jesus said one day, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them every day. It turns out practicing generosity requires and reinforces the perception of living in a world of abundance and blessing, which itself also increases happiness and health. It turns out the universe we inhabit is located in a spiritual reality that favors generosity. It turns out you were hardwired to give, and it turns out you reap what you sow. 
Smith writes about the joy of people who've discovered this. Again, this is just em empirical verification. One of the generous people he studied is a guy named Ken Walker, a guy who's generous with his money and generous with his time. Uh, he also gives blood. Now, mostly you don't think of getting stuck by a needle and giving away blood as a joyful thing. And this is basically what Ken said. Uh, I'm extremely competitive. I started giving blood at work. I think they came in three or four times a year. I would give blood and I was training hard and I was really fit. Uh, they would come and they would give instructions about the pint and that it should take you know four minutes uh, to give a pint of blood and how everyone's blood typically comes out and it's all brown sludge, you know, chocolate syrup color. He says, mine was pink and I'm just cranking it out uh, like a pint in two minutes and 47 seconds. He's timing it. Yeah, they're like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm, I'm winning. <laughs> the guy's pouring out his blood and he's thinking he's winning. Oddly enough, it turns out that having... Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.